Happy Sabbath. I bring you greetings. The beauty of being part of a sisterhood of schools is the fact that no matter where I go, I am home. So I bring you greetings from those that you do not know but will know in heaven, your brothers and your sisters from California, from La Sierra University. Um, I'm going to speak fast today because I have so much that I want to say, and I tried it out in first service and realized that I left a lot out, um, so I am going to try it again and just speak faster, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> trying this out. Um, I bring you greetings. I also want to bring you a word of affirmation, and that's the picture that you're going to see next. Um, Pastor Benjamin talked about this. I want to affirm you on this work that you as a university and as a church have been doing for many, many years, this work of diversity, this messy work of, of trying to live together. This family that you see here was my family. And back in 1980, a group of pastors, refugees from Cuba came here, thanks to a faculty member, I believe it was Orlando Mastrapa, who opened up the doors. And so we came, and that December, that picture that you see there, um, just like Jerry Ann, I was just so eager. My dad said that from the age of three, every time he would make a call, I would show up in the front somehow. And so that was actually supposed to be my brother's baptism at uh, the Spanish church here nearby. But he said I would just not let him do it without me. So I sort of like jumped into the... Um, so this is a place where so much history has happened for me. My dad went on to get his MDiv from here. My mom went on to get her master's in chaplaincy. I went on uh, to get... Uh, my work. And I share this with you because I want you to know this. This morning I got a call from my dad and he said this. And so much of what I'm going to say leads to my next slide. Today is really an invitation for you to enter into God's imagination. And I want to be, I want to explore this with you. When my parents came here to this place, to this location, it was never in their imagination that someday I would be here speaking. Never. They left a country for the only desire was that I would be able to be educated and they could be free to worship. But when you enter into God's imagination, God can imagine a future that you can't even begin to think about. See, in there, what I think we do often, and this is a paradigm that has to be changed, and this morning I'm going to invite you to change it. The behavioral economist, Daniel Kahneman, says that you can't change a mind. What you can do is you can think again. So I'm going to invite you to think again with me. Because this is what we do. I believe we live in a paradigm where we say, this is what I want, and we grab God and we invite him into our little paradigm, into our little imagination, into our little box, and we say, let your will be done. And I'm going to tell you today, take a risk and do completely the opposite. You walk over to God into his big imagination and his big story, and you say to him, I am entering to whatever you are doing for me. It changes the way you do life. It changes the way you think about life. It changes the way in which you experience life. And God didn't leave us alone to think this way. He sent us Jesus, his son, to help us understand what this looks like. What does it look like when you live a life in God's imagination and not your imagination? Now, I want to say a couple of caveats. Number one, I, I, I am not in any way, shape, or saying that the human imagination is something to be looked down upon. 
I am brought to tears by the art, by, by music, by the way in which the human can think and can imagine. I'm not saying that that's not what has to happen. What I am saying is, can you imagine if that capacity is given up to the will of God? It's unstoppable. It's unbelievable. My next slide, I want to share this thought with you. It comes from Professor Tribble, and she says, Only two ingredients constitute life, and both are tenuous, the dusty earth and the divine breath. She grabs those two concepts from the Hebrew language. We are made up of two ingredients, dusty earth and divine breath. Think about this. So when I invite you to enter into God's imagination, I am saying, allow the dusty earth to actually be able to breathe in the divine imagination of the creator. It is grand. It is big. It is messy, I often say. It's messy because my next slide will tell you we enter into the unknown, right? When we talk about diversity, when we talk about, when we try to figure this out, we're entering into the unknown. We're entering into things we don't understand, into differences, into ways of behaving, into ways of thinking that haven't come across because, and my next slide will tell you, I'm going to say this name as well as I can. Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie says, there's a danger when you have a single story. She talks about the fact that whenever we come into any conversation, into any part of life, we have only our story, our understanding, my background, my social construct, my Cubanness interprets everything. I remember I was in Costa Rica and my husband kept on saying, you've got to tone it down. Because my Cubanness was like way up here. And the people were kind of like just looking at me like, Lord Jesus, where did she fall from? Right? We have a single story. We have one way of seeing life. And today I want to invite you into this diversity conversation. And I'm going to say something in, in advance. I want you to know that being, we are, that being that we are gathered as a faith community on this sacred Sabbath in this house that we have dedicated to God, this is not going to be an intellectual lecture on diversity. Although that's my dissertation and that's my life work. But I actually, what I want to do today is I want to invite you to living life in the imagination of the creator. So at any point that you hear me, I don't want you to think that I, I in, in any way, shape, or form, don't see and understand the value of diversity. I'm just going to call you to move through that into the bigger value about being the children of God. And that we as a church, I'm going to assert on various occasions, that we as a church, if we can walk with Jesus in this, in this reality, we as, as a church can live in a much different kind of reality. That's what I'm going to be asserting. And I'm going to say there are three things in my next slide, three things that I have to help us go through this. Number one, we have to do this work with Jesus. There's no other way of doing this but with Jesus. There really isn't. It's, it is why God, the Father, why he sends down his son so that we could see, look, do you want a visual interpretation of what my imagination can do? Look at my son, Jesus. Live like he did. If you've seen me, what does it say? You've seen the Father. So we have to do these conversations with Jesus at the center always. Number two, I'm going to say that you have to do it as a follower, right? As somebody who's learning, 
We don't come to these difficult diversity conversations with the, under, with the thinking that I know everything. I will tell you, as all of you that have completed a dissertation on any kind of program, by the time you finish, you realize just how little you know. And here you have invested six years and you think, this is not enough. Because we're learning. Alan G. White says that from the very beginning, we were created, even as perfect beings, we were created with the capacity of learning. God could have just uploaded a program. Click, all of it is in there. But he did not. He created the perfect beings with the capacity to learn. And so today, when I ask you to think again, I invite you to learn with me. Think again. And lastly, we enter any conversation on diversity with deep humility. Deep humility. With the understanding that I'm only speaking about a very small, very small part of a big reality. There's a couple of constructs that I want to share with you that guided my conversation today, and then I want to jump into the word. The, guy, the theories, the assumptions that were made. The next slide shows you, I teach a freshman class, and it just so happened this past Monday that my freshman class was uh, working on diversity. And the textbook had this quote, which we spent some time reflecting. And it says that more than 98% of the genes of all humans are exactly the same, regardless of what their particular race may be. My son, when I was sharing this all excited, he's in the sciences, he's all, it's actually more like 1%. Can you imagine... We share 98, 99%, but we fight and we battle and we argue and we dehumanize each other over 1%. When I say to, that I invite you to enter into God's imagination, I say that because God lives in the 100%. God is not limited by that which we see with our eyes, or we experience with our culture, which is the next statement that was on the textbook. It says, race and ethnicity are subjective to socially constructed concepts that reflect how people perceive. Our society constructs an idea of what good looks like, what handsome, what beautiful, what smart. And then we construct all of our lives around that instead of around what God has asked us, which is, is incredibly ignorant if I could use a kind word, yeah? My next slide, I wanna just share two authors that have really helped me in this conversation. Instead of reflecting on the kind of society we ought to create in order to accommodate individual or communal heterogeneity, I will explore what kind of selves we need to be. Did you hear that? If we enter into this conversation with the end goal being the school that we want, the church that we want, the society that we want, instead of the end goal being the self that God is creating, we enter it wrong. We must enter it with the idea and the reality that we must be changed. You want to change society, you change. It doesn't happen the other way around. And the other author in the second quote is Professor Johnson, and he says, the fundamental focus of the gospel is not on Jesus' wondrous deeds or his wise words. It's on what? It's on his character, the character of his life and death, because ultimately it's the way that we live. So let's get to the story, because I'm dying to share with you. This is my favorite story. It is a story that I think 
If those of you that haven't done a, a dissertation yet, you want to tackle diversity in this story, it is rich, it is packed. This is a story that to me visually, visually walks me through what it looks like to encounter the unknown. And we do it with Jesus. Who better to do it with? It is found in John chapter 4. John is the master storyteller, as you know. I want to just point out a couple of things. But this is all throughout John. This story, John chapter 4, is the Samaritan women. When John tells a story, when John has a theme or he's, comes, he's giving an idea, he will tell two stories. He combines two stories. John chapter 4 is the Samaritan women. John chapter 3 is who? Do you remember? Oh, I know you remember. Come on now. Nicodemus. Okay? In chapter 4, she is a woman. In chapter 3, a man. In chapter 4, she's a Samaritan woman, the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. In chapter 3, he is what? A Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, the elite. In chapter 4, she comes to Jesus at what time? Middle of the day. In chapter 3, he comes to Jesus at night. There's a ton more. In chapter 3, he talks about being born again. In chapter 4, what do we learn about being born again? This is what it looks like. This is John, the master storyteller. Every single verse is packed. And when you read it just with your lens, you can go through it so fast that you miss out what he's trying to say, what he's trying to speak of. But we enter the text and it reads like this, John chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus, but it was his disciples who were baptizing. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. I want to pause and give a warning that is early on in this chapter in regards to the conversation about diversity. And here's my warning. When we don't enter as learners and as followers of Jesus, we end up pushing Jesus out of the story. He had come into his people and the Pharisees and they're arguing over who baptized who. And in that argument, they ended up pushing Jesus out of the story, which allowed him to enter into another story. Friends, we must be careful that in our quest and in, in our indignation for what is right, what we understand it to be, in our limited single-story capacity, that we aren't pushing Jesus out of the way to make sure that our will is accommodated rather than his will. But secondly, I want to point out what Jesus does and how he responds, because this is a lesson to every single one of us. Jesus could have stayed with the Pharisees and he could have stayed arguing about, it wasn't me, I'm not the one baptizing, you guys are in the wrong. But instead, Jesus is following the Spirit and he moves through. You hear this all throughout the gospel. He goes to the next place. And we find out way later that actually from before time, this encounter had already been predicted and prophesied. And that's the reason why John is going to use the bones. He talks about Jacob's well and the bones of Joseph. All of this, what he's doing is he's pushing us all the way to the back to remember this has been prophesied, which reminds me, 
Here's why we must enter into God's imagination because he's not limited by time or space or idea or social constructs. And so when Jesus follows the spirit of God and heads over to this well and he's accomplishing a prophecy, Jesus is also now about to bring salvation to the Gentiles. How do you like that? When you follow the Spirit, whatever story you had can only grow bigger. Whatever you think you were understanding can only open up to a larger scope and a larger lens. And so the verse comes, goes on and it continues. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a plot in town in Samaria called Sikar near the plot of ground of Jacob and given to his son Joseph. And this is just... You can spend an entire sermon just on this text and make all the connections that John is making about, about Joseph, about the fact that he was isolated, about everything is here in this text. But I have to move on. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Who gets to the well first? Jesus or the Samaritan women? Jesus. And I want to say to you today, this is our story. We live in a God reality where Jesus always gets there first. Always. From Genesis until Revelation, this work has been done by God and God alone. And the invitation has always been made to us. I am here. Come. He arrives at the well. And who speaks first? Him or her? He does. He does. The king of the universe extends his hand and asks her and gives her a purpose. Can you give me some water? You don't think that he could have figured out water. He could have done that. I don't need you. Water. That's not the way he works. That's not the way he thinks. He follows the Spirit and slowly, slowly and methodically by listening to the Word of God, we are transformed and we're invited to be part of the calling. It's beautiful. And of course she answers, how are you talking to me? Because you know that this feud between the Samaritans and the Jews goes way back to the Assyrians. And it was, a, it was more than a feud. It's, it's hatred. We can't even imagine it. The closest we have right now is probably the Jews and Palestinians. And that's not even close enough. And so I imagine, here she is, which by the way, everything that John is saying, is saying gives you clues. She has a well in her own town. She walks out of her town. She's coming at noon. She's coming by herself. Okay? The worst hour would have been three, but noon is a bad hour. Going to the well was an activity, a social activity that women did early in the morning together. It was the way that they bonded. But she comes out of her town. She comes into a well that's not there. She's by herself. You, you can just imagine her walking to the well with her head down. She's carrying a weight. She's heavy. And she looks up and guess what? Oh, there's a Jew at the well. And in her limited imagination, she probably begins to prepare for the blows that will follow. But she isn't meeting just any other rabbi. She's meeting Jesus. And whenever you come to Jesus, 
There's never blows. There's always an invitation to enter into the kingdom. She doesn't know that. And so she asks the question, how are you doing this? Why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. It's like, did I just fall out of a warp zone? Did you not know the rules of our society? And silently, Jesus says, do you not know the rules of the divine? Whatever you construct, I reimagine. Friends, this is the God that we serve. Whatever we construct, he can reimagine. He can reimagine time and time and time again until we're tired and we finally say, okay, we're going with your imagination. And then celebration occurs. And then we begin again the next day or the next hour, if you're like me, because God is constantly reminding me. So they engage in this beautiful conversation. And God exposes to her about this idea of water and water of life. I don't have time to go there. I want to keep moving. And I'm going to move us over to the conversation that I know you're wanting me to engage in. Because whenever we hear the story, we always hear just one part of the story in one conversation, right? And so, verse 15, the woman says, sir, give me this water because she's a learner. I love this about her. She, 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 Jesus is telling her hard truth. Don't think that Jesus is being light with her and he's going to even be even harder with her when we start talking about worship and the way it's intellectually impossible to even imagine the things that Jesus is saying. But she stays there and she listens and she learns. And I imagine in her mind, this, this next interchange probably comes because in her mind, she's probably like, well, he's really nice, but he must not know who I am. And then Jesus says to her, hmm, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband, she replies. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite right. Jewish commentators have hit us hard with our Western-centric interpretation of this text. I need you to know. Because often we enter this text as if somehow she has a sin. Anywhere on this text does Jesus say, go and sin no more? Is that anywhere articulated on this text? No, because this isn't that kind of conversation. We actually see what this is like when she goes back to her town. If you know anything about this time, you understand that women have no options, no choices in regards to marriage. By the time that you're 13 or 14, you're given into marriage, whoever your father decides. And then if that person wants you or doesn't want you, it's completely, oh, if he dies, remember in Tamar, if he dies, then you go to the next. There, this, isn't an, this isn't a choice she gets to make. It is a social construct that she will live with, though. It is a shame and a guilt that will be hers because she has no identity if nobody owns her. And thus you have no husband is a hard thing to swallow because that means that the man she currently is with won't even recognize her and give her a name. But he will have her. And so that shame and that heaviness that she's walking towards Jesus with comes from the fact that she lives in a world and a reality that she has to make a way for now stay with me. Don't exit. Don't exit. Stay. Because this is beautiful. This is beautiful. You see this connection when she goes back to her town. 
And she says to them, and again, we have mistranslated this. She says to them, I've met somebody who knows all of me. She refers back to this one moment when she was thinking this thing and all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, I know you. I know all of you. And yet I came first and I spoke first because this is what the kingdom of God is about. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son. And so he came not to what? Condemn? What does 17 say? He came not to condemn, but rather to? save. This is a salvation moment. And he says to her, I know you. I know all of you. I'm always saddened when I talk to young people and they make this assumption that when they come to prayer with Jesus and they wear these masks, you know, as if, as if somehow I have to be a certain thing before I come to Jesus. And I need you to know this story reminds us you don't need a mask. When you come to your creator and to your maker and to your friend and to your guide, when you come to the feet of Jesus, when you come to the well that he has provided, come as you are. Let him speak life into you. Let him clean those wounds that you carry. And friends, we carry wounds. And if we don't allow God to, to clean these wounds, what we end up doing is we ended up making theology out of wounds. And we grab God, this grand, massive, ginormous God, and we theologize and put him into this little box of pain and wounds. And it's because we ourselves have been deeply hurt. So let me say two things. For those of you that this is a reality, that we as a church have in some way, shape, or form in some part of your life misunderstood, misinterpreted, misconceived, accept my apologies. Hear me when I say I am sorry. And I speak not as somebody who hasn't done that. I speak as somebody whom Jesus is daily teaching me, stop. If you're going to use your eyes to see, then open your spirit to translate. Otherwise, close your eyes and get on your knees. Because you will cause more harm when you open your eyes to look at the differences at the 1% rather than close your eyes and let the 99 engulf you. There are many ways in which we separate one from another. There are many ways in which we tell each other. And it's not just race. We do this with age. We do this to the young. When we think you're too young, you can't do this. And we do this to the old. You're too old, you can't do this. After first service, a heartbroken elderly came up to me and she told me about the pain that she suffers when she isn't included in anything. She's too old now. I don't have anything to do. We do this as humans all the time. We grab, we grab the adjectives, right? She's Cuban. She's old. She's young. She's smart. She's dumb. She's, we grab adjectives and we grab humanity and we demean the humanity of God with the adjectives constructed by our humanness. And that has to stop. That has to stop. 
For we serve a God who can see the big picture and invites us to enter into this. And when we do like Jesus would, you break barriers and you bring people in. You don't shun people out. You bring them in and you bring them over to Jesus. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of the kingdom. This is the work of Jesus. I'll finish with the last. I'm going to jump through a lot. The conversation on worship is beautiful, but I'm jumping to the last one. Oh, and by the way, I always forget this. Is it not beautiful that Jesus reveals himself for the first time to her? Before this, he's not. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not. You know, don't, you know, go back to your town. She is the first person he reveals himself to. Think about this. When we get to heaven and I meet her, I'm going to say this. I mean, she went to heaven. She's, I mean, she goes, she dies. She has no concept. I mean, she thinks it's a great rabbi. She doesn't understand what's happening. Can you imagine her in heaven when we say to her, girl, you're the first to know. He revealed, he trusted you with his whole self. Can Jesus trust you with his whole self? Can he trust you with the revelation of his will, of who he is? He did this with her. Beautiful. And yet, look at verse 27. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned, and I love how John writes this. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the women. But John adds, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Isn't that lovely? John's like, oh, we were all surprised, but none of us asked. Just want you to know, it needs to be written in the records. But the next verse says, she knew. She knew. Because she leaves her jar and she runs. Something about the way they looked at her, something about the way it, they came upon, told her, what are you doing here? We as humans have that capacity, you know. We don't need to speak anyone into oblivion. We can look them into oblivion. It is sad. And this is what happens. She's been sitting, she's, she's been sitting at the feet. Next week we celebrate the risen and ascended Jesus that the entire universe will worship. And she has been sitting at the feet of Jesus and not once has she felt that she has to go. Friends, everybody that enters into our person, into our church, should never feel like they have to go. This is the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is come. Whoever comes, we are the disciples, you all. We're not, the, we're not a crowd. We're not a followers. We are disciples. We have dedicated our lives to following Jesus. And as such, we need to call ourselves into accountability when something about our being says to somebody, you're not welcomed here. Rather than invited, come. Come to Jesus. What do you need? Come to him. I'm just, I'm just following him right? I'm just following. I'm not guarding him. I'm not protecting him. You can't have him. Since when is that the work of a disciple? No, come meet Jesus, right? This is what the baptism happened today. 
right? This is what dad has done with Cherry Ann. Come, meet Jesus. I know you're 10. Come, meet. Let's study. This is what the family did with Yvonne. Come, meet Jesus. But for that to happen, we have to let go of our single story. And I'm going to end with this story. I was in Walla Walla, Washington. I was doing a week of prayer. And I met Granny Silver. Granny Silver at that time was in her 90s. Okay? I never met a person like Granny Silver. She was in her 90s. And she, had, she heard that I was in town at Walla Walla. And so she said, come over to my house to eat. I walked into her house. And I had never been to a house like this. In her walls, the pictures of her walls weren't people. The pictures in her walls were leaves and like insects with a pin on them. And there was rocks and stones everywhere. And I was like, oh my word. What is this? I'm going to die. Except she's a lovely person. I never felt that. She was so lovely. And she was like, come. And she was explaining to me. Her ministry, she's in her 90s. Her ministry was, she would go on walks every single day. And, and, and she would be praying in her walks. And she would collect leaves. And then she would grab the leaves. And she would put them on a little piece of paper, uh, card, cardboard. And she would write a scripture. And then she would laminate it. She would make about 80 or 90s of these. And on Sabbath morning, she would be the welcome committee at the church. And she would give everybody one of her laminated. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I didn't get it. Why do you give somebody a leaf? I, I was honestly, I don't get this. But she stuck with me. She goes and she says, Yami, if you love this, you're going to love this. I've got to go get you this. So she runs into her room. She comes back and it's now kind of broken, but back then it was a little bit more whole. And she comes with this rock and she's super excited. I mean, like giddy excited. Oh, you're going to love this. You are going to love this. And she's walking with this rock. And I'm thinking, maybe this is the rock that hit Ellen G. White. Like maybe there's, <laughs> there's like, there's a story, you know? So I get the rock, right? I get it. And I'm like, you know, we've all been taught to be courteous. You know, I was like, it's lovely. It's a beautiful rock. Wow. You know, <laughs> she's looking at me like, oh, Pete. She says, Yami, no, look inside. What? I'm sorry. There's an inside to a rock. I didn't even know that. You know, I, I grew up in a different context, right? When we came to America, you know, the teachers in, in like third grade or so, you know how they have you like get up a little piece of stone from outside, put a little piece of paper. You made a ladybug, right? That's the one that I remember. And I remember I happily went home to my parents, you know, and I was like, mom, I made a ladybug. And she's like, what is that rock doing in here? Go throw it outside. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. What am I doing with a rock? You know, as I throw it outside, right? So I, I don't get this, right? And she says to me, no, look inside. And so I look inside and I am mesmerized by this crystal garden. I'm like, this is what rocks look like? Who knew? I've never seen this. She laughs and she says, Yami, I want you to take this. And I want you to remember this. When we look at each other, this is what we see. We make judgment calls. We throw it upon each other. 
When God looks at us, this is what God is looking at. Friends, I can imagine what a church will look like if every single one of us entered into God's imagination and we had eyes to see. I can. And I invite you and I, and I ask of you to continue this work of diversity with faithfulness. It is difficult. It is messy. The conversations are tough. Jesus had tough conversations with her. But ultimately, when we engage it, we're engaging in the work of the Creator. And the closer we align ourselves with His sight, the closer we can become what He has called us to become. Amen? Amen. Father God, I thank You. I thank You for this community of faith. I thank You for this church that makes these conversations available. I thank You and I praise You. And God, we don't want to just stay here. We want to think again. We want to continue to think. We want to continue to understand. We want to glow further and further closer to your will, not away from it. So speak. Speak in our lives, we pray. And continue to do the work in us, with us, and through us. I pray in your name. Amen.